This episode of the Mental Health Podcast brought to you by the Ontario Structure Psychotherapy Program at Ontario Shores. OSP provides you with support for depression, anxiety, PTSD, and several other mood disorders through Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT. Best of all, it's free. Find the self-referral form and everything else you need to know at ontarioshores.ca slash OSP. Ontario Shores, discovery, recovery, and hope. We look to our lawmakers and politicians to come up with mental health policy, especially to deal with addictions. But we also should be looking to them to look upstream, find ways to identify and treat the causes of addiction in the first place. Michael Tabolo is Ontario's Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. He actually has a background in running addiction and detox programs. This gives him a unique insight into the problem and what we can and what we should be doing about it. The politics of addiction, right now on the Mental Health Podcast. Hello, I'm Kevin Frankish from Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences. This is the third in a three-part series we've been doing on the very complex but very serious mental illness of addiction. I've spoken to many politicians in my time, and I can tell when they have actually have a passion for a certain ministerial portfolio, and Michael Tobolo is indeed one of these politicians. He speaks empathically and sincerely about mental health, especially about addictions. Hello, Minister. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. As I said, you come by your portfolio of Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, honestly. Tell me about your past life. So my background started with uh, practicing law. I uh, practiced for 30 years in the area of corporate commercial law, something very different than what I do today. Um, In the span of those 30 years, the last 10, I started doing motivational talking because of my um, involvement in martial arts. I I hold a fifth degree black belt in Taekwondo, and I taught the Do of the martial art, which is the art of living, which really is foundational to how any of us should live our lives. And um, in the process of doing that, I met some people from one residential therapeutic community that asked me to come in and speak one day. And from that one day, it turned into every week for a month. And then it became, well, why don't you just take over the uh, some of the group sessions that we do on the Fridays? And uh, that's how I got my first taste really of mental health and uh, addictions issues. And from there, started working with the then government of the province that um, didn't see the importance of mental health from from my standpoint anyways, because they weren't funding any programs. And I thought, you know, something needs to change. And so uh, challenged by Deb Matthews back then, the former Minister of Health, who suggested that I didn't know um, enough that most of my evidence was anecdotal, I decided to go back and start my doctorate in clinical psychology which I should have completed by March of uh, next year. I will be defending in March. Um, And so I've become an expert in mental health and became the first minister for mental health and addictions for the province of Ontario and told back then Eric Hoskins, who became the minister, who was a friend as well, that I was going to take his job. And I did. So here I am. I'm the minister now responsible for mental health and addictions for the province of Ontario. A long journey, but one that certainly has given me a lot of perspectives and insights into the things we need to do if we're going to get this issue dealt with appropriately and really help as many people as possible. 
I think the word is empathy. And this goes a long way in actually not only to try and solve a problem, but I guess to understand it as well. So paint me a picture of how bad addictions are now and is it getting worse? Well, the situation has been worsening. Pre-pandemic, I would say that we had a pandemic as it related to addictions and mental health. And when we talk about mental health, when we talk about addictions, they really go hand in hand. I have yet to meet a person, and I've been doing this now for 15 years, 10 actually in the field and five as minister, where three of those five years as minister, but 13 years. Um, I've yet to come across a person with an addiction that didn't have an underlying mental health issue. So they really coexist. They're really concurrent. Um, But addictions is impacting a lot of people. You know, the statistics were one in five people are suffering from a mental health or an addiction issue. I would say that post-pandemic, we're probably closer to three in five people. Um, mental illness affects people in many different ways. Addictions in particular, the, in particular is a disease, and we've never looked at it that way. We've always looked at it as a social or, or a social justice issue, and we've never really understood that addictions is in and of itself an illness that is treatable, provided the right resources are put in place to help people. Now, in fact, you said before, you need to make people realize that you're not first focused on changing a behavior here, but actually you're talking about the illness itself. Well, an illness really uh, is a result, uh, and typically there's something that's underlying the 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 addiction issue and addiction is really a, a coping mechanism that's being used to deal with another illness that's underlying that addiction uh anxiety depression uh the results of of other concurrent types of disorders that lead to an individual feeling hopeless unable to find resolution to their particular problem which gives them that opportunity or the thought that perhaps by self-medicating they can help themselves get better or at least cope with the symptoms. But unfortunately, the addiction aggravates the symptoms and results in either more use of a substance or even a process, gambling and uh, social media and some of the other process addictions. These all become coping mechanisms, escapes for individuals to try to stabilize themselves, but uh, they all end up with um, worse consequences than than when they started. And of course, COVID, with the isolation, with all of the things that impacted individuals, created even more of a problem for individuals. Again, when it comes to looking at an addiction, you really need to look at all aspects of the person's existence. You've got to look at that person's genetic makeup. You have to understand the impact that proper nutrition has or won't have on the development of the brain. You've got to understand where that person is in their lifespan to assure that you have the appropriate resources in place to help the individual. You have to look at behaviors and how those behaviors came to be. And a lot of times those behaviors have an underlying family issue or an attachment issue or some kind of trauma that was either intergenerational historic trauma or trauma that was caused as a result of the failure of the family unit. So when you look at all 
when you look at an individual, you really need to understand who that individual is and what has led to that individual needing to somehow cope with these difficult situations. They can be dealt with. We know that different uh, modalities of treatment, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, uh, uh, there's so many different modalities of treatment. But the most important thing that we have to get over is the stigma associated with that mental illness and get that person to appreciate that there are resolutions that can be brought forward to give that person relief from those symptoms and really get to the root causes and help the individual thrive as a, as a citizen of our, of our province. Yeah, one of the roadblocks towards recovery and that thriving you speak about is stigma. When it comes to addictions, this gets all muddied up because it's one thing to have a mental health issue. It's another thing to be an addict. That, that, that word carries a stigma itself. It's, it's a huge issue, but yes, I believe it can be gotten past. You know, there's some organizations that are doing incredible work bringing awareness that a mental health is, issue is an illness and it can be treated. You know, I look at some of the work that's been done in terms of even in reaching out into different communities. We live in a really interesting society, but that society also has complexities within it that a lot of times we don't understand. We're not all of English origin. We weren't all born in Canada and understand and appreciate how we deal with each other on an individualistic basis, because that is how we live our lives as Canadians or as Americans or from the UK. People from the UK have a very individualistic worldview. Many of the people that live in the province of Ontario and in Canada do not have an individualistic worldview. They have a, a worldview that's based on community. It's based on, based on a collectivist concept, which means that when you have a problem in the home, you don't talk about it. You don't go outside of your family or your immediate community. And of course, the resources become less and less because they need to be more and more specialized. And we don't have the specialists that are able to do all the work that needs to be done. So that conflict in our society continues. And the most important piece of the work that I do is to look at culturally appropriate supports and services to meet people where they are, understand the implications of their historic trauma, whether it be a black person, an indigenous person, uh, you know, the collectivist worldviews, the Chinese, the South Asians, many of the Europeans. So understanding that and increasing the awareness of that as an issue, not just for the individuals to feel more comfortable to come forward, but also in our training of individuals from these different cultures and ensuring that we're leveling up the field so that we have people that are able to provide those supports and services that are appropriately trained. That's one of the most important pieces of the work that I do. And it's encouraging to see that, you know, we've just graduated our first psychiatrist who's Ethiopian. Um, that's a huge, huge benefit to the Ethiopian community because building the key to successful treatment is to build trust and that alliance between the person who's providing the services and the adverse individual that needs it. You're going to build it when you have that commonality when it comes to culture and to language. And we're seeing this repeating itself more and more in other communities and cultures. I actually go out and celebrate these because they're so important to building that base, that foundation that ensures that we have the supports where necessary. So it's improving. 
lots more work to do because again, cultural sensitivity to delivery of services was not something that was front and center because when you think about it, most people shy away about talking when it comes to their mental health or, or problems they may be having. But as we speak more and more about it, as we see more promotional campaigns from KMH and other organizations that are promoting it, as we see young people becoming more engaged with understanding the importance of mental wellness, we're starting to see that that the conversation is growing and it is making a significant improvement in the lives of the, the, the people that are seeking help. So help me understand the underlying connection between depression, anxiety, and addiction. What layer of the onion do we peel away first? It's an interesting question because when I've met uh, people that had addictions at the recovery center where, where I was working uh, or, or volunteering, um, what I used to always have them come in was to, to, to speak to me about where they were in their lives at that moment. And it was interesting because they would always start to talk to me about their addiction and so I would drill down and try to understand, well, what brought you to this? What influenced you to need a substance, to use a substance? And they started talking about their family life. They started talking about needing to find a way to cope. A lot of them were using alcohol because alcohol readily, was readily available, easy to, to obtain, whether at home or, you know, at a friend's house, it was easy. But it eventually over the course of time, because alcohol is a depressant, it's not a stimulant, it actually aggravated the situation. And so they started to use other substances, which brought them to a situation where they needed to get help because it basically overtook their, their, their prefrontal cortex, their ability to think, and they found themselves lost. And it's interesting because an addict will always tell you the first time they use, it's for the high. Every time after that, it's to deal with the uh, conditions or the feelings that they have as a result of the withdrawal. So as much as it's a great way to sort of deal with the issue initially, the issue then becomes one of how do I survive the withdrawal symptoms because it is overwhelming the, the feelings. Now, anxiety and depression are, are interesting because everyone has a certain amount of anxiety and a certain amount of depression as part of their being. What ends up happening is it actually is a defense mechanism to help keep the brain healthy. In some cases, it becomes uh, aggravated and you have more acute cases that people find themselves unable to perform or unable to get out of bed some days. Those situations need to be dealt with for obvious reasons. There are techniques and methods that can be used, obviously, outside of the use of alcohol. One of the programs that I'm really proud of is the um, system of the Ontario Structured Psychotherapy Program that allows 16 uh, uh, um, uh, interactions with a psychologist or a psychiatrist for the purposes of dealing with uh, moderate and mild anxiety and depression. We found that it also helps in acute cases, but it's helping a lot of people because it is, they are the two most prevalent um, uh, mental illnesses uh, that, 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 that we uh, have to deal with. But anyone listening to us, I, I want to say there's nothing to be uh, desperate about it. A little bit is actually good for you. But if it's overwhelming, there are programs, whether it's Ontario Structured Psychotherapy, many of the programs virtual that we have online that are available. Um, there are ways to teach coping mechanisms to deal with those acute cases and provide the ability 
for the individual to really live a very productive life without the need of intervention of alcohol or um, other substances to try to dull the the emotions or the feelings that a person has when they're they're in that state of anxiousness or, or depression. And if you think addiction doesn't affect your life, think again. Even if you may not be aware of anyone with addiction issues in your orbit, it still impacts your life every day. And in fact, Michael, you blew my mind about a certain crime stat when it comes to addiction. Well, one of the things that I'm always uh, interested in understanding is what are the root causes for situations? You know, I'm, I'm really interested in, in ensuring that our streets are safe, that, um, that we look after our, our, our seniors, that we provide as many opportunities to people as possible to live a productive whole life. And then you say to yourself, well, there's violence. Well, what caused that violence? There's theft. Well, what is the, why is there the, the amount of theft that exists? And you look to see that in many cases, a lot of the crime that we're witnessing has something to do with an underlying mental health or addiction issue. So an individual who finds themselves using a substance to deal with issues that they have uh, need to buy substances somewhere. They either steal them or they have to buy them. And if they have to buy them, they have to find the resources. Parents, um, family members, I mean, they can clean up bank accounts, they can lose homes. I'm sure everyone has heard those stories where, where gambling uh, addictions has resulted in financial disaster to, to, to an individual. Um, the use of substances, we've seen doctors stealing medications to self-medicate themselves. And, and lose their licenses to practice as doctors. Well, you know, when you don't have those opportunities, you're going to steal wherever you can steal. And I remember when I was doing, uh, when I was Minister of uh, Community Safety and Corrections, one of the things I discovered, aside from the fact that 35% of the people in our uh, corrections facilities don't belong there, because it's somehow an, a mental health and an associated addiction, the reason behind why they're in corrections facilities. But the amount of crime that we see, it's almost 70% of all crime is somehow related to substances and the need for people to use substances. They have to find them. So where do they find them? They find them on the street. Where do they get the money for it? Because it's a cash business. They find it by going into people's homes, by you know stealing vehicles and whatever else. I mean, more than just that their addiction is being funded, other criminal activities are being funded as well. But when you think about the amount of people that are homeless looking to use substances to try to live uh, or exist because it really isn't living, but uh, or individuals that need that extra income, that extra cash to be able to feed those, those habits, um, it's not hard to see why we're seeing the problems that we're seeing on the street today. Yet our response more often than not is to just hire more police officers rather than working on the cause, as I said, upstream before it becomes a public safety issue. Yes. Well, it's an, it's an interesting observation when you think about, you know, when you, when you think about how we live our lives and how our society structured, you know, I always reflect on what is the role of police. And, you know, you don't have to go very far to find out. Look at the Police Act. It's very clear. It talks about the role of police, their primary function being prevention and education, not enforcement. Now, that's an interesting concept, because when you stop and think about it, 
what do our police do? And anyone listening to this is going to say, well, their primary role is enforcement. It's keeping the, the, the streets safe. Yes, but if all they're doing is chasing criminals, there's never going to be enough of them to chase all of them. And as a result of that, you've got to ask yourself the question, why do we have so many criminals? Why are these people committing these behaviors that are contrary to our society's fundamental values? Look at the situations that we've had with the violence on the TTC, around the TTC, in parks, you know, in, in community areas, in, 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 in malls. Um, a lot of this violence is an outward manifestation of an underlying mental health issue. And so again, you say, well, how do we fix that? The way you fix that is by having the resources in place to ensure that you have the supports for individuals when those individuals are apprehended. But more importantly, having trained police officers able to be part of the community and having them embedded that way. You know, I was in Portugal last January. I spent uh, a week looking at the model that they have there as it relates to addictions and how they treat addictions there. But the really interesting part for me was looking at their their, their, their policing model, because the policing model was one that was focused on one third of the police force being trained as teachers. And where did they work? They worked in the schools. And what were they doing? Well, they were doing everything from guidance to after school activities with the kids, coaching, uh, soccer. They were embedded as part of that community. They were seen as part of the community. And the, they, another third of their police force is on street duty with respect to the areas where people walk each and every day, the small stores the uh, in, in the neighborhoods. And the rest of them are on the streetcars and subways and the public transit. I thought to myself, that's really interesting. The entire police force is deployed doing preventative work. So who's doing the apprehending? It's kind of like if we didn't have addictions, we wouldn't need to have addiction treatment centers because there aren't addictions. So the more that's invested in prevention, the more we do to redefine and really transform how we see our police services, the more likely we are to see a huge improvement. Because again, people will not see police officers as being present to enforce but see them there as community members to prevent. And this to me is something that I, you know, it hits home for me as well, being now in the Ministry of Health, working as the mental health minister. I look at our hospital system and I think of how many people are going to our hospitals for the purposes of getting help that they shouldn't be going to the hospital to get, but there's no other place for them to get it. So we've built this incredible hospital system to deal with acute cases and we've inundated it with all kinds of cases that don't belong there case in point uhn in toronto 250 people homeless people used the hospital's emergency room 15,000 times so you look at that and you think well we're not building big enough hospitals because of the usage in those hospitals. But if we look at the individuals and unique individuals that are using the facilities, we realize that maybe we shouldn't be building bigger hospitals. We should be diverting some of those investments into building community-based supports. 
whether it's social housing, whether it's, you know, improvement with respect to, um, you know, education and job creation and investing in all those other social determinants of health to make sure that the individual never gets to the point where they need to go to the hospital. So you say, well, that sounds great, Tabola, but what proof do you have that that's going to make a difference? We built, along with UHN, um, the province, the City of Toronto, and uh, the United Way, 50 modular homes in the City of Toronto. We took 50 individuals who were the ones that were most frequent users of that emergency room, and guess what? They didn't go to the hospital a single time. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that if you build a continuum of care within the community, maybe that is how we address the issue and not wait for acute cases to develop and have to go to use a hospital, which is the most expensive form of treatment. And maybe capacity numbers will change if the investments are being made in the community. And I can tell you, based on evidence, based on studies that I read um, to support the work that I do, that there is better results in the delivery of services to individuals in the community than there is when you have to ship them across the province to get help or the wrong kind of help. And so the, the key is to build a client-centered system with wraparound supports and services that meet the individual where they are, but then provide the supports and services necessary to get him or her to the best outcome possible for them. Well, Michael, I, 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 this is no offense intended, but you're not a very good politician <laughs> uh, because I've just spent time asking you questions and you've given me straight answers and, and answers that, that you, it's obvious you know what you're speaking about. And at any time I can have the opportunity and you want me back to talk about, about what we're doing or what we believe needs to be done, um, I, I'm more than happy to do it because the message has to get out there. We can't always talk about how bad the situation is. We need to start focusing on solutions. And the solutions are there. It just takes, you know, what we say in Italian, la volontà, the, 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 the willingness to get us to where we have to be. So thanks for the opportunity. I look forward to talking to you uh, again in the future. Thank you so much for this. Michael Tibolo, Ontario's Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. You can find out more information about addictions. We've put together a full page of resources for you. Go to ontarioshores.ca slash info. I'm Kevin Frankish from Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Mental Health Podcast. If you have any thoughts about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at thementalhealthpodcast at ontarioshores.ca. Please don't be alone. Reach out for professional help. For more resources and advice, check out our website, ontarioshores.ca. The Mental Health Podcast is a production of Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences. I'm Kevin Frankish. Take care of yourself and take care of each other.